Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Right, welcome back to this GAI seminar. Today, very proud, very happy to have Stephen Froling come up from the Australian National University, and Andrew has come down from the Tower of Power up the road there, and they're going to talk about a collaborative project that they've been working on for a period of time. Okay, so they're going to be talking about extended deterrence nuclear weapons and U.S. alliances. Stefan, thanks very much for coming up. Uh, Andrew, thanks very much for coming down, and over to you. <laughs> thanks, Ian, and I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting today, the Jagger and Turbal people, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thanks, everyone, for coming to the seminar today. What I thought I would do is sort of kick things off, then hand over to Stefan for about 15 or 20 minutes, and I guess my focus will be more on some of the history of the cooperation between allies in the US, not just around nuclear posture reviews, which we can trace back to the first one in 1994 under the Clinton administration, but also, you know, I guess the questions are, why does the US cooperate with its allies on nuclear weapons, and what's in it for the US? But also, what's in it for US allies? And how do the dynamics of that cooperative relationship work? How do they differ across different alliances? And indeed, how do they differ within alliances, particularly the NATO alliance? Because different countries within NATO, as we discovered in our research, have different approaches. And we'll talk a little bit about Norway. That's one of the case studies that we examined. But I guess to sort of kick things off, really, we were talking about this over the past week about how we would present it and we sort of realised that there are really two strands to this. I think it's a kind of, it's, it's not really in the spirit of seminars which are meant to be forward looking, right? This is my next piece of great research that I'm going to do and this is what's going to result. This is partly backward looking as well. It's recounting what we've done, really I guess over the last five or six years through an ARC project but also a project that was funded by Australia's Defence Department. So that's sort of one side. It's a bit of a retrospective. But I think also a bit of a prospective as well in terms of us looking for the next project. You know, where is this moving to? How are we going to pivot from what we've done to the next project? What else is there sort of investigated here? Have we reached the end of the road in terms of what can be done in this area? Or are there options for further investigation and, you know, talking through things like ARC discovery projects and, and other funding agencies as well to sort of target future research. I think our gut feeling is that there is more here, but again, I think quite often when you finish projects, you heave a big sigh of relief, but then you start to think about, okay, well, what comes next? And I think that's often a big challenge of research that's often not discussed because it doesn't necessarily pertain to the coherence of research designs or you know, other aspects of research. It's a more practical question of what comes after this, which sometimes isn't easy to answer. So this is a bit of a strange photograph to kind of kick things off. You probably recognise the person in the middle who was just sworn in as a new Prime Minister. I think this photo was taken either in early 2021 or... Actually, I think it was early 2021. So this is when the ban treaty, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, came into effect. And I won't go into a lot of detail around the ban treaty here and now, but essentially this is a treaty that, as the name suggests, seeks to ban nuclear weapons. It is the product of a long period of work on the part of NGOs, sort of led by the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN as they're known, and supported by a whole range of 
mainly countries that are, I guess to use that old sort of Cold War expression, non-aligned countries, so they're not in an alliance with the United States, but many countries who, I guess, have been traditional proponents of disarmament in the UN system. What's interesting about this treaty as well, I think, is that it did have the initial support of some NATO states, so Germany, Germany correct me here if I'm off base, but certainly under previous coalition governments and specifically with the Greens Foreign Minister Vestavella. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, in sort of circa 2011, 2012, where questions were being raised in some European NATO allies about the future of stationing US nuclear weapons in Europe. It seems quaint now, given what's happening today, but certainly there was quite a robust debate that coincided with Barack Obama's Prague speech, or just after his speech in 2009, around envisioning a world free of nuclear weapons. What's interesting about this photograph, I think, is that, and for the eagle-eyed among you, you'll spot the person on the right is the local member here, for Morton, Graham Parrott, obviously Pat Dodson there as well, and Anthony Albanese. I don't know the two people on the left, I must confess, but Albanese is on the record as supporting the ban treaty. What's interesting about this, I think, is that it suggests that Labor, at the very least, now in government, will have a bit of a balance to achieve between its sort of traditional support, but particularly Albanese's quite vocal support for this treaty, on the one hand, but on the other hand, the need to maintain and, I think, from Labor's point of view, strengthen the alliance with the United States. The US has come out very clearly saying it opposes this treaty and basically links any allies supporting it as not really acceptable, as the Norwegians found out a few years back. So clearly there's some work for Labor to do in terms of this tightrope, because I don't think this issue is going to go away, although you could argue it has less salience now, given what's happening in Europe. But to me it suggests an ongoing challenge for Labor in government, balancing, I think, the expectations on the left of the party for progress on issues like disarmament with, I guess, the sort of reality of government where you're confronted with, you know, do you support the US alliance? Yes. What are you going to do to strengthen it? How do you manage that alliance in accordance with US expectations, but also what Australia wants to get out of it, particularly in the context of AUKUS? Meanwhile, the United States is in the process, or has been in the process, of undertaking its latest nuclear posture review, the 2022 NPR. And this is an interesting process insofar as, well, I think a few things are interesting. The first is that we haven't yet seen a published unclassified version of the 22 NPR. We know that a classified version of the NPR was sent to Congress earlier this year after an extended period of consultation with allies that included the Biden administration sending out a questionnaire to all US allies in relation to the nuclear posture review. Again, there's been no detail released on the questionnaire, but reporting in the Wall Street Journal and, and the Financial Times has indicated that the administration sent this out as a sort of a formal request to allies seeking their views on issues like no first use, sole purpose, that is the only circumstances in which we use nuclear weapons is in response to a nuclear attack, no first use, by contrast, is a commitment not to use nuclear weapons first. And apparently the response was from allies was overwhelmingly that they didn't want to see any changes to US nuclear policy. And in a sense, this accords with the response, certainly the allies' response in 2018 when the Trump administration took its NPR then, 
but maybe of more relevance for the Biden administration was 2010 when the Obama administration undertook its NPR, which I would say was probably the first truly consultative NPR in the sense that the US made an effort to go out and consult with allies in detail over the plan, which in turn led to the creation of extended deterrence dialogues with South Korea and Japan, a more formalised institutionalised structure of interactions and actually made the Allies feel, if not in reality, that they were part, very much part of this policy process. Reporting also indicates that the Biden administration, despite the President being on the record as being sympathetic to no first use and certainly self-purpose and being under pressure from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party to embrace at least one of those, preferably NFU, that the administration has gone for a fundamental purpose of nuclear weapons rather than this. Now, all of this might sound like wordsmithing, but from the perspective of allies and the US nuclear policy establishment, it really does matter because it cuts to the heart of the circumstances in which the US would consider using nuclear weapons in a, in a crisis or a conflict. So from an allied point of view, it does matter for those obvious reasons. One of the question marks, I guess, is whether and to what extent the Biden administration will continue the Trump administration's emphasis on lower yield warheads, particularly for submarine launch ballistic missile forces, to close what the 2018 NPR characterised as a capability gap that the Russians may seek to exploit by using nuclear weapons first on the assumption that the US has a sort of suicidal surrender choice and so it doesn't respond with nuclear weapons. The Trump administration's argument was that the US needs lower-yield nukes to make retaliation against the Russian low-yield use more credible. There's a question mark over the future of that. We also know that the Biden administration has, in fact, cancelled the sea launch cruise missile nuclear program that the Trump administration had got off, or certainly on to the drawing board, that it's basically put a red line through that in the budget. So the administration, and I think it's clear that that's largely to sort of compensate the progressive wing of the party for not going down the no first use route. So to sort of rewind from all of this, to look back, I guess, at the interaction of US allies with nuclear weapons, as Myra Rat Hooper argues, the extended deterrence has really been quite fundamental to the logic underlying US alliances since the 1950s. And, and this was the period where the US started stationing nuclear weapons at scale in Europe, but also started stationing nuclear weapons in the ROK at the end of the 1950s and began to be more active in you know, thinking through scenarios in which you would use US nuclear weapons on the territory of other countries. And it wasn't until later the discussions around nuclear burden sharing and joint planning really began to get traction. But I think, you know, the big challenge for extended deterrence, of course, is what Thomas Schelling kind of talked about as being the threats that need to be made credible. So the threats that you make in response to an attack on your homeland have inherent credibility, to paraphrase Schelling, but the ones made on behalf of allies, you know, you have to work at making them credible. And that's the big task for the US, but also allies themselves, of course, managing that and feeling anxious about whether the US would actually, in a moment of truth, as the old saying goes, sacrifice Washington for, you know, pick a city in Europe. 
So there's diversity in how the nuclear umbrella has operated. In some instances, this has taken the form of forward deployment, really up until the early 1990s. That was the case in South Korea between the late 50s and early 90s. You had US tactical nuclear weapons stationed in South Korea. The South Koreans actually had very little, if anything, to do with that and the way those weapons were managed, which is kind of, again, the sort of an idiosyncratic feature of extended deterrence. Obviously, in the NATO context, forward deployment was and still is key. The way I think the US uses its strategic nuclear forces, that is, its sort of non-theater, non-tactical nuclear forces to provide reassurance as well to countries like Australia, but also Japan, and also as a supplement to assurances through tactical nuclear weapons has been important too. The degree to which allies have a stake or have a role, I should say, in joint planning of targets, the way forces will be composed, the way they're postured, or whether it's just a process of consultation. And consultation, of course, can just mean the US informing allies the way it's going to be. And essentially, that has been the case with the extended deterrence dialogues with the ROK and Japan, is that they have had no direct input into US planning, but have had an avenue to consult the US over what the US is doing. And I think that's an important distinction. And of course, declaratory salience. You know, how salient are nuclear weapons within the extended deterrence relationship? And we've seen recently, of course, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a real uptick in Russian nuclear saber rattling that the US has accordingly dialed up, not as much as Russia, but it's certainly dialed up the nuclear side of those reassurances to NATO allies, just as it did with Japan and the ROK after North Korea tested its first nuke in 2006. So a lot of that history is really interesting, and we are interested in that. And I think for the book, what we did was really use six frames to really identify the drivers. You know, what's driving nuclear cooperation? I mean, what you often get in the literature is a fairly caricatured view of nervous allies demanding the US provide it with nuclear reassurance to stop them acquiring the bomb. I don't think either of us would deny that that's been a factor, but I think what's clear is that it's not monocausal. There's no single driver of this relationship. So we were curious to find out what the other drivers were. We used six frames. I won't run through them in detail, but ranging from the threat assessment, policy objectives, nuclear strategy, domestic factors, the importance of the Alliance for US Security and Access to Information. And we found that these six frames provided a degree of purchase in really getting inside, I guess, the nuts and bolts of the relationship between the US and individual allies, and I, you know, I won't go into detail around the hypotheses now, but suffice to say that we had one realist hypothesis that essentially cooperation exists because of balancing behaviour. On the other hand, we had an institutionalist hypothesis that put more emphasis on the role of structured interactions and organised practices and, dare I say it, even some norms as well in explaining why cooperation exists. And our findings, I don't think came as any sort of real no real surprises. I think maybe one thing we didn't expect was the degree of what we would term the idiosyncrasies that individual alliances had, and I can talk more about them in a minute. But essentially, four key findings. The US has frequently used nuclear weapons to shore up confidence about its broader strategic commitments. So nuclear assurance is seen as signifying the depth of overall US commitment to the alliance. Nuclear weapons, in a sense, being a proxy for that commitment. And we saw this with the INF deployments in the late 1970s in Europe. We see this today with 
US B-52 and B-2 bomber task force missions to US allies, certainly in Europe at the moment, but also in Northeast Asia. The enhancement of institutional depth in nuclear weapons cooperation has promoted reassurance. It has promoted reassurance among non-nuclear US allies and enabled closer political and operational integration of benefits to allies. So the obvious case here is the nuclear planning group in NATO, but I also mentioned the extended deterrence dialogues with the ROK in Japan. Interestingly, Australia does not have any equivalent dialogue with the United States on nuclear issues. There's some second-track stuff that Stefan and I have been involved in and regularly takes place, and maybe you could call it one-and-a-half-track because there are some officials involved, but really there's no structured interaction between Australia and, and the US. And as an aside, I raised this question a few years back with a State Department official, and his response was, well, we've been knocking on the door, but you guys haven't opened it for us, and we can only assume that you're concerned about entrapment. And I thought about that, and I thought, yeah, that makes sense, actually. Most people tend to conceive Australia as this sort of nervous, anxious ally, but if you look at Australia's behaviour, we have kept the US at arm's length on a few things and I think that dialogue, that may be changing by the way, but at the time when I had the conversation I think it was relevant and that was under a coalition government so there may be something in that. US allies have at times actually reduced and in some cases declined material cooperation that would have visibly linked US nuclear weapons to their own security. Largely for domestic reasons, it's true. Certainly in some European cases, in the Norwegian case, it also has to do and this, again, is going to sound incredibly quaint given what's happening in Europe today. Historically, Norway's been quite sensitive to Russian perceptions and it's sought to sort of moderate its engagement with the nuclear side of extended deterrence with the US. I think those days are gone, but certainly during the Cold War, there was a degree of... Some countries like Norway were sensitised to that. Obviously, Japan, because of the domestic situation... But it's interesting. This is actually quite contrary to a realist explanation, which would be to say... Countries are going to try and max out great power reassurance, and that includes nukes, but that hasn't happened, actually. And also, contrary to realist predictions, US allies are able to exercise a significant degree of influence in cooperation regarding US nuclear weapons, and this surprised us as well. The US actually, historically, including under Republican administrations, in fact, maybe primarily under Republican administrations, has been sensitive to the dilemmas and challenges confronted by centre-left governments in allied countries. And they've agreed to certain carve-outs. We saw this with the Hawke government in Australia, for example, where the Reagan administration actually did understand some of the challenges the Hawke government was facing. Wanted to help it out because it recognised that the government was a pro-US centre-left government. And you can see this sort of operating in a number of European countries as well, and perhaps even to a degree under the Moon Jae-in government in South Korea, although that might be contested. So we like to think that our research, or certainly the book, Partners in Deterrence, has the findings, I should say, have relevance for, for policy makers. I guess it's the holy grail for most research these days, certainly on this topic. So we like to think it's had at least three implications for policy makers. So the first is that US nuclear weapons cooperation with allies should be seen through the prism of underlying relationships, not just the particular condition of alliances under any given US president. And I think when we think of, within living memory, at least my living memory, two US presidents who were really disastrous for alliances, Donald Trump and Jimmy Carter. 
Trump, well, I think most of you understand the sort of excessive emphasis on transactions. We all know the story. Less known, I think, is the story of the Carter administration, which upended, essentially, almost upended entirely its relationship with South Korea through a unilateral announcement over complete US troop withdrawal from the peninsula by 1982. That was in 1977. And that included a withdrawal of US nuclear weapons. It blindsided a range of NATO states through its cancellation of the neutron bomb project, was not consultative. President, in many respects, behaved like Trump, very unilateral, very arrogant, not consulting allies. Despite these two periods, institutions and undertakings, and dare again, I say it, norms of behaviour are quite robust and resilient. And I think for institutional interpretations, that's quite important. Institutions, in a sense, structures, institutions are more powerful than agents in this process. The second kind of implication here is that policy objectives that allies have sought to obtain in their cooperation on nuclear weapons, as I mentioned before, have been highly idiosyncratic. There is no cookie-cutter explanation here for why allies behave the way they do. I talked about Norway's screening, wanting to sort of engage with US nuclear weapons, but on Oslo's terms, very much on Oslo's terms, presented to the US, you can sort of take it or leave it. Japan's secrecy and its obfuscation over nuclear transit, West Germany's fixation on avoiding collateral damage through short-range use on its territory, and, of course, Australia's unique extended deterrence formulation, where we have never formally asked the United States for a declaration that nuclear weapons form part of extended deterrence. What we've done is we've stuck it in our own strategic guidance documents, but the Americans have never unilaterally, of their own accord, if I could put it like that, pronounced that Australia is under the US nuclear umbrella. It's an assumption rather than something that can be demonstrated if that makes sense. And that's kind of weird if you stack that up against how other US allies have negotiated those arrangements. And finally, the US has over time become more focused on deeper consultation with allies. Not just a tick and flick exercise, but I think certainly under the Obama administration, someone like Brad Roberts, who led the NPR in 2010, a genuine consultative process and, you know, under the Trump administration as well. Certainly very credible reports of the administration providing draft copies of the NPR to allies for detailed feedback. So I think US administrations have got a lot better through, certainly through the NPR process of consulting allies. I'm going to stop there and hand it over to you. All right, thank you. If you like, from a historical perspective, in this first phase of our research, like, really showed in our view of how nuclear weapons are intricate to broader alliance reassurance. So it's very hard to think about extracting nuclear weapons from alliances as kind of like compartmentalized from conventional deterrence and in the way that it's sometimes suggested. And that in many ways it was often discussions and cooperation over nuclear weapons that has catalyzed broader alliance integration, obviously, including in, the, in particular, obviously, in Europe, but I think also you can demonstrate similar things happening in the U.S.-Japan alliance in particular. And that those kinds of developments, this catalyzing role, if you like, of nuclear weapons and that broader reassurance role that doesn't just go to will they use nuclear or not, but can like frames perceptions of the U.S. as an ally, it's something that did continue during the Cold War era, but also afterwards. And so if you take that as a, I think that, that's some important lessons for the future of U.S. alliances. So I think in the second part of our research over the last few years, we've kind of like tried to look at 
what does that mean if we look at challenges facing alliances today and into the future? And so I think that there is, despite Obama's Prague speech and the push for nuclear disarmament, I think it's fair to say that in recent years, nuclear weapons have, or nuclear anxieties, have made a return in U.S. alliances. Somewhat ironic, in the, in the Indo-Pacific context, in particular South Korea and Japan, you can actually date that to about the same time that Obama was talking about eventual nuclear disarmament. Partly it was actually that speech that triggered a lot of these concerns. Again, less so about disarmament as such, but then what it tells you about American priorities in the context of the North Korean nuclear program, in the context of the Chinese build-up, and then ultimately that then led to, again, extended deterrence dialogues that sought to catalyze greater cooperation and broadly reassure about U.S. political objectives, but again, it was actually about nuclear weapons in the narrow sense. In Europe, you have a similar development, but again, a few years later, and obviously it was the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2014 that again kind of led to a reassessment of the role of nuclear weapons in European security, followed then by NATO confronting Russia over its violation of the INF Treaty, and a fairly deliberate attempt in NATO capitals to reinvigorate nuclear thinking, nuclear policy, nuclear posture in the alliance. And that's really something that kind of started in 2015. And by 2016, certainly, you see in the Warsaw communique, for example, Warsaw Summit communique, a much greater engagement of NATO governments. I mean, there's almost two paragraphs where a lot of the traditional policy positions, deterrence positions on the alliance about the role of nuclear weapons from the Cold War get reincorporated into current NATO statements, whereas over the like, two decades after the Cold War, they'd kind of been whittled down to only two short sentences on NATO nuclear weapons in 2010. Now a lot of the old Cold War language is back. And I'll come back to that in a moment. And so it's in this context that then came the 2018 NPR that Andrew already mentioned, the Trump NPR. And I think it's important to remember that this NPR was actually very well received by allies in Europe and in the Pacific. It was well received by Australia, by the Scandinavians, even by the French. So they really squared the circle. And there's a few reasons for that. I, mean, part, and I think it's the balance between continuity, and in many ways it's just reflected bipartisan positions in the U.S. that has already been an um, element of policy in the 90s, 2000s, and, and under Obama, about the fundamental nature of uh, importance of nuclear deterrence. But it also complemented those with some new elements that Andrew already mentioned, and that did pick up on some of those concerns that had arisen in the last few years in a way that sought to address the impact of nuclear weapons on alliances, and then again, try to use U.S. nuclear weapons to like reaffirm confidence in U.S. guarantees more broadly. And this is really these complementary capabilities, in particular the development of a low-yield Trident missile that went to sea in 2019. And it's interesting, if you start to look at this as a turning point where the U.S. starts to change and adapt its nuclear posture again in order to react to current security developments, what that means for the future of U.S. nuclear weapons in U.S. strategy in general and in U.S. alliances. And there's some ambiguities there in the 2018 NPR that maybe cannot be resolved, but they're ultimately the ambiguities that Biden is now grappling with. And I think one of the challenges that the Biden administration may well find are ultimately irreconcilable. One of the issues here is that in the face of Allied concern about the possibility that Russia might use nuclear weapons or threaten nuclear weapons as a way of wedging the alliance of undermining political unity, 
The argument, as Andrew here said, was that the U.S. kind of like filled what was perceived as a capability gap about being able to respond in a timely and a national manner with capabilities to limited use in order to convince Russia that limited use on their part would ultimately not be successful. And I think it's important here that there is a certain, it's a very tricky, I mean, it's internally coherent, but ultimately tricky position to say, ultimately, that the U.S. is improving its capabilities for limited nuclear use, not in order to actually conduct limited nuclear use, but ultimately to prevent limited nuclear use by the Russians. And so the NPR itself addressed that explicitly. It I mean, explicitly said that this is ultimately to increase the nuclear threshold, and it's not about war fighting and Trump administration officials, and that, yes, we're improving our abilities for limited nuclear use, but we reject the notion of a limited nuclear war, which is why the French like the NPR. But ultimately, you can see that it's a bit of a halfway house. And if you look at certainly what that means, that greater focus on how can we use the American nuclear arsenal to prevent the Russians from using nuclear weapons as a way of shaping crises and coercing NATO, does lead the American system to engage again with the role of limited nuclear strikes in crisis management and escalation in a way that we really haven't seen for the last 30 years. And so, in particular, if you look at the stories that are coming out about the policy positions on limited nuclear use out of OSD in Washington, reflecting the NPR, the policy position or the thinking about limited nuclear use that is coming out of Omaha, Headquarters Strategic Command. You can see where you stand on these issues depends on where you sit, obviously. And that certainly is one of the tensions in American policy at the moment, demonstrating that the U.S. is able and committed and equipped to conduct limited nuclear strikes and manage limited nuclear escalation, while at the same time saying this is not actually what we want to do, is one of the challenges one of the ways in which I think has successfully reassured allies over the last few years that the U.S. is acknowledging these new tensions, but obviously a somewhat challenging policy position to articulate, at least in a public way. The other tension that comes into this is that largely that return of focus on limited nuclear use as a credible contingency in U.S. nuclear policy and something that the capability for limited nuclear use as something that the U.S. wants to use more actively for crisis management in Europe, when you actually look at credible scenarios where you might see U.S. limited nuclear use, they're actually less in Europe and more in the Indo-Pacific. Limited nuclear use in a land theater is very hard to see about control of escalation in a land theater, you can trade space for time, so the pressures for actually using nuclear weapons are less and so on. In the Indo-Pacific, though, in a maritime theater, the situation is a bit different. Obviously, American superiority in nuclear weapons is much more pronounced in the Indo-Pacific. On conventional forces, less so, so probably the opposite as in Europe. If you think about use of nuclear weapons in a maritime theater, escalation control is easier to conceive than in a land theater. And at the same time, also, if you think about, for example, an invasion of Taiwan and some of the scenarios that are really of concern to the Japanese in particular, you can also make an argument if there are any scenarios where a question of will the Americans win or lose a war might actually depend on the question, are they willing to use nuclear weapons in order to, let's say, sink an invasion fleet or not? And those kinds of decision points just don't exist in any credible European scenario. And so I think that although... American policy changed in the last few years as a reaction to events in Europe. 
it actually has reassured Indo-Pacific allies, in particular, I think, Japan and to some extent South Korea, because they recognized that the way that American policy was changing was actually congruent with what they were trying to see in American developments, in American alliance, even if the U.S. didn't articulate it with a particular Indo-Pacific focus, although obviously the sea-launched nuclear cruise missile was, I think, fairly much seen from Indo-Pacific allies, in particular Japan, as something that would be the basis on which to translate that same logic into our region. So I think that these undercurrents are very real, and I think that if you look at the current policy debates on Indo-Pacific alliances, you see them appearing and bubbling up, including, I mean, for example, this 2021 report by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, which made a recommendation that the U.S. and its Indo-Pacific allies should create an Asian nuclear planning group. I think that there are some problems and some misunderstandings about what is actually the function of the nuclear planning group in NATO with that recommendation. But the reasons worth highlighting here is one of the co-authors of this report was none other than our own Kevin Rudd who just a few years before launched the Evans Kamaguchi Commission about nuclear disarmament and all of that, things have changed a bit. He's now putting his name against these kinds of recommendations. So I think that times are changing even if it's still more of an undercurrent, if you like, than explicit in major alliance debates, certainly in Australia. But even that, I think, is changing. I mean, if you look at the way that the Ukraine, well, the, I want to say invasion of Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine started in 2014. So the second phase of the invasion of Ukraine, if you like, has changed the perception amongst Indo-Pacific allies about how do you manage the risk of great power conflict. It's pretty clear that the role of nuclear weapons has become more prominent. And I guess you can see that here in both in South Korea and in Japan calls for a greater role of nuclear weapons in managing deterrence, becoming more and more vocal. And so one of the things that we did as part of the second phase of our work, it was an edited book with contributions from Europe, NATO, US, and Indo-Pacific allies, looking at how our current alliances, US alliance, actually positioned and equipped to manage the political and the military challenges of escalation of great power conflict. Andrew has a bunch of free copies in his office. If you're interested, we can also download it. It's a free download online. But I guess the bottom line here is that if you look at both Europe and the Indo-Pacific, obviously the differences between alliances that we saw historically persist, but the three main takeaways are probably not really encouraging. And the answer is probably, well, ultimately there's a long way to go for us to actually have confidence in these alliances that we are, we actually have credible ways of managing escalation that we're comfortable and confident in. And in particular, if you look across these alliances, there's, I think, three policy recommendations that came out of that work. I mean, one is that there's really a need now to move from consultation about U.S. policy in the way that Andrew has described to more joint development of deterrence assessments, postures, and policies. In many ways, historically, if you see it, what has created confidence in extended deterrence is actually less being informed by American assessments than jointly developing assessments, in particular in the NATO context, which has actually often then led to a reassessment of American national assessments about what actually went on. So I think that move from consultation to joint development of, in particular, assessments of effects of nuclear weapons and nuclear use, I think is we're probably at an inflection point there where mere consultation has run its course in terms of effectiveness. Based on that, NATO has started doing again, and what we're not seeing yet in the Indo-Pacific, but probably need to start looking at in light of the scenarios that are now worrying in particular Northeast Asian allies, is to holistically approach U.S. force structure 
for long-range strike at the level of alliances. I mean, in particular, the question of how do U.S. conventional and nuclear capabilities articulate with allied capabilities. And you see that with the emergence of long-range strike capabilities in South Korea and Japan. You see that with questions about how do, for example, allies contribute possibly to nuclear strike, even if just through conventional operations. Those kinds of questions, how do allied strike capabilities and U.S. strike capabilities fit into an escalation ladder, those are kind of questions that we're only starting to scratch the surface within allied conversations. And then finally, a need to engage populations in the necessity of deterrence and collective defense. It's hard enough yet to have these discussions behind closed doors, but ultimately, certainly, if you again look at the history, one of the main lessons from the Cold War is that you have to take populations along with this and actually be more active about engaging populations and explaining some of those needs and positions. So a lot of work to be done. But again, I think that Ukraine has demonstrated the effect and the very practical relevance of these questions. And I mean, I think you can see certainly headlines like these, the potentially quite corrosive effect on alliances of not actually getting developing policy positions that give allies the confidence that alliances are a way of dealing with nuclear deterrence and nuclear coercion. On the other hand, I think that you also got to remember that despite these headlines, in the end, Germany did decide to send heavy weapons, and somewhat ironically, one of the very first decisions that the Social Democrats and Greens did was to acquire the JSF specifically because that aircraft will be able to continue nuclear sharing so that the German Air Force can continue to deliver U.S. nuclear weapons as part of NATO nuclear sharing. So the commitment, and I think nowadays the recognition of the alliance and the nuclear acquis, if you like, in terms of policy and posture as a way of dealing with nuclear coercion in the way that we're seeing now is, I think, probably more recognized in European policy and political circles than probably since the end of the Cold War. And the question, I guess, is where to from here. If you look at in June, there's going to be a big NATO summit in Madrid. At that summit, there's going to be a new strategic concept, the first new strategic concept since 2010, which will provide a reflection of the, by the Allies on what has changed in this regard over the last 10 years, and you can imagine that nuclear weapons will play a much greater role than they did when allies last considered the basis of their security in 2010. And you will likely also see a much greater extension of allied forces, including perhaps nuclear forces, into the east as a reaction of Ukraine. And so this leads us then to the final part of where to from here. What might a greater role for U.S. nuclear weapons and U.S. alliances look like? And that's the final piece that Andrew and I did at the end of last year. And we think that there's actually really three main questions that in the Indo-Pacific and in Europe, U.S. alliances will have to confront over the next, like, say, five to ten years. In particular, I think that these are going to be, the, in our view, the questions that the Biden administration is actually grappling with at the moment, which makes the current NPR so hard. And those questions are questions that we've already confronted during the Cold War, but ultimately haven't really looked at in the last 30 years, and probably need to find new answers that reflect the current geostrategic, the current technological, and the current political relationships, which are quite different from the Cold War. And that is the question, I mean, what actually does link U.S. strategic nuclear forces to the security of allies? So in other words, what does coupling look like these days? In the second half of the Cold War, a lot of that confidence in coupling rested on the absence of missile defense, this idea of no sanctuaries between the great powers, that's gone. 
So there's probably going to have to be a much greater reliance on regional escalation options for that coupling role. The second question is how do we start creating risks of inadvertent escalation for China and Russia? Ultimately, for the last 30 years, we've tried to engineer nuclear risk out of nuclear postures. Ultimately, though, deterrence also relies on us, the credible possibility that we might do something that we actually probably wouldn't want to do. So again, how do we actually make sure that we create uncertainty and risks for the adversaries rather than engineer risk out of nuclear postures? And how do we credibly leave open the possibility of limited nuclear use if only to deter limited use by the adversary? And I think if you start to think through all three of those challenges which ultimately underpin extended deterrence, the role of forward-based nuclear forces really becomes crucial to all three of them. Uh, so forward-based nuclear forces, as they exist in Europe still with the B-61, but which simply, as Andrew said, don't exist in the Indo-Pacific anymore. The U.S. nuclear posture in the Indo-Pacific reflects the geostrategic judgments in 1991 of the U.S. presidential nuclear initiatives, but obviously the geostrategic context in the Indo-Pacific now, as opposed to 1991, has changed almost beyond recognition. So the question of at what point will American nuclear posture and allied expectations of American nuclear posture in the Indo-Pacific catch up with that geostrategic change, in our view, it's probably going to be sooner rather than later, given the way that things are going. And we hope that our work collectively across all those three books has done a bit to shape ways in which one might think about that development, which we think is now getting underway. Are we good at that? Okay, I thank you very much to you both. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au/podcasts.